0: Chapter Seven, Parts Five to Nine of *The Passionate Friends* by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Seventh, Beginning Again. Five. The next day, my mood declined again. It was as if that light, that sense of release that had shone so clear and strong in my mind, had escaped me. I sought earnestly to recover it. But I could not do so, and I found my old narrow preoccupations calling urgently to me again. I thought that perhaps I might get back those intimations of outlook and relief, if I clambered alone into some high solitude and thought, I had a crude, attractive vision of myself, far above the heat and noise, communing with the sky. It was the worst season for climbing, and on the spur of the moment I could do nothing but get up the rocher on the wrong side, and try and find some Erie that was neither slippery nor wet. I did not succeed. In one place I slipped down a wet bank for some yards, and held at last by a root. If I had slipped much further, I should not be riding here now. And I came back a very weary and bruised climber, without any meditation. Three nights after, when I was in bed, I became very lucidly awake. It must have been about two or three in the morning. And the vision of life returned to me, with that same effect of enlargement and illumination. It was as if the great stillness, that is behind and above and around the world of sense, did in some way communicate with me. It bade me rouse my spirit, and go on with the thoughts and purposes that had been stirring and proliferating in my mind when I had returned to England from the Cape. Dismiss your passion! But I urged that that I could not do. There was the thought of Mary, subjugated and weeping, the smarting memory of injury and defeat, the stains of subterfuge and discovery, the aching separation. No matter, the stillness answered, in the end all that is just to temper you for your greater uses. I cannot forget, I insisted. Do not forget, but for the present this leads you no whither this chapter has ended. Dismiss it, and turn to those other things. You are not only Stephen Stratton who fell into adultery. In these silences he is a little thing and far away. Here and with me you are man, every man, in this round world in which your lot has fallen. But Mary, I urged, to forget mary is a treason an ingratitude seeing that she loved me but the stillness did not command me to forget her but only to turn my face now to the great work that lies before mankind and that work that work so far as your share goes is first to understand to solve and then to achieve To work out in the measure of yourself That torment of pity And that desire for order and justice Which together saturate your soul. Go about the world And brew yourself with life. Make use of that confusedly striving brain That I have lifted so painfully Out of the deadness of matter. But who are you? I cried out suddenly to the night. Who are you? I sat up on the side of my bed. The dawn was just beginning to break up the featureless blackness of the small hours. "'This is just some odd corner of my brain,' I said. Yet, how did I come to have this odd corner in my brain? What is this lucid stillness?' Six let me tell you rather of my thoughts than of my moods, for there at least one comes to something with a form that may be drawn, and a substance that is measurable. One ceases to struggle with things indefinable, and the effort to convey by metaphors and imaginary voices things that are at once bodiless and soundless and lightless, and yet infinitely close and real. And moreover, With that mysterious and subtle change of heart in me, there came also a change in the quality and range of my ideas. I seemed to rise out of a tangle of immediacies and misconceptions, to see more largely and more freely than I had ever done before. I have told how, in my muddled and wounded phase, I had snatched at the dull project of improving my languages, and under the cloak of that, Spying a little upon German military arrangements. Now my mind set such petty romanticism on one side. It had recovered the strength to look on the whole of life and on my place in it. It could resume the ideas that our storm of passion had for a time thrust into the background of my thoughts. I took up again all those broad generalizations that had arisen out of my experiences in South Africa, and which I had been not so much fitting into as forcing into the formulae of English politics. I recalled my disillusionment with British imperialism, my vague but elaborating apprehension of a profound conflict between enterprise and labor, a profound conflict between the life of the farm and the life of trade and finance and wholesale production as being something far truer to realities than any of the issues of party and patriotism upon which men were spending their lives. So far as this rivalry between England and Germany, which so obsessed the imagination of Europe, went, I found that any faith I may have had in its importance had simply fallen out of my mind, as a danger to civilization, as a conceivable source of destruction and delay, it was a monstrous business enough. But that in the long run it mattered how or when they fought, and which one, I did not believe. In the development of mankind the thing was of far less importance than the struggle for Flanders or the wars of France and Burgundy. I was already coming to see Europe, as no more than the dog's-eared corner of the page of history. Like most Europeans, I had thought it the page. And my recovering mind was eager and open to see the world beyond, and form some conception of the greater forces that lay outside our insularities. What is humanity as a whole doing? What is the nature of the world process, of which I am a part? Why should I drift from cradle to grave, wearing the blinkers of my time and nationality, a mere denizen of Christendom, accepting its beliefs, its stale antagonisms, its unreal purposes? That perhaps had been tolerable, while I was still an accepted member of the little world into which my lot had fallen. But now that I was thrust out, its absurdity glared. For me, the alternative was to be a world man or no man. I had seemed sinking towards the latter. Now I faced about and began to make myself what I still seek to make myself today a son of mankind, a conscious part of that web of effort and perplexity which wraps about our globe. All this, I say, came into my mind as if it were a part of that recovery of my mind, from its first passionate abjection. And it seemed a simple and obvious part of the same conversion, to realize that I was ignorant and narrow. And that, too, in a world which is suffering like a beast in a slime-pit, by reason of ignorance and narrowness of outlook, and that it was my manifest work and purpose to make myself less ignorant, and to see and learn with all my being. It came to me as a clear duty that I should get out of the land of hotels and leisure, and go seeking the facts and clues to human interrelationship nearer the earthy roots of things. And I turned my thoughts to India and China, those vast enigmas of human accumulation, in a spirit extraordinarily like that of some mystic who receives a call. I felt I must go to Asia, and from Asia perhaps round the world. But it was the greatness of Asia commanded me. I wanted to see the East, not as a spectacle, but as the simmering vat in which the greater destiny of man brews and brews. 7. It was necessary to tell my father of my intentions. I made numerous beginnings, I tore up several letters, and quarreled bitterly with the hotel pens. At first I tried to describe the change that had happened to my mind, to give him some impression of the new light, the release that had come to me. But how difficult this present world is, with its tainted and poisoned phrases, and its tangled misunderstandings. Here was I, writing for the first time in my life of something essentially religious, and writing it to him whose profession was religion, and I could find no words to convey my meaning to him that did not seem to me fraught with the possibilities of misinterpretation. One evening I made a desperate resolve to let myself go, and scrawled my heart out to him, as it seemed that night, a strange long letter, it was one of the profoundest regrets that came to me when I saw him dead last winter, that I did not risk his misunderstanding and post that letter. But when I re-read it in the next morning's daylight, it seemed to me so rhetorical, so full of, what shall I call it, spiritual bombast, it so caricatured and reflected upon the deep feeling sustaining me, that I could not post it for shamefacedness. And I tore it up into little pieces, and sent instead the briefest of notes. I am doing no good here in Switzerland, I wrote. Would you mind if I went east? I want to see something of the world outside Europe. I have a fancy I may find something to do beyond there. Of course it will cost rather more than my present allowance. I will do my best to economize. Don't bother if it bothers you. I've been bother enough to you." He replied still more compactly. By all means, I will send you some circular notes, post Rome. That will be on your way. Good wishes to you, Stephen. I'm glad you want to go east instead of just staying in Switzerland. I sit here now and wonder, little son, what he thought, what he supposed, what he understood. I loved my father, and I began to perceive he loved me wonderfully. I can imagine no man I would have sooner had for a priest than him. All priestcraft lays hands, if it can, and with an excellent wisdom, upon the titles and dignity of fatherhood. And yet here am I left to guessing. I do not know whether my father ever worshipped, WHETHER HE EVER PRAYED WITH HIS HEART bared TO GOD. THERE ARE TIMES WHEN THE INEXPRESSIVENESS OF LIFE COMES NEAR TO OVERWHELMING ME, WHEN IT SEEMS TO ME WE ARE ALL ASLEEP OR ENTRANCED, AND BUT A LITTLE WAY, ABOVE THE STILL COWS WHO STAND MUNCHING SLOWLY IN A FIELD. WHY COULDN'T WE, AND WHY DIDN'T WE TALK TOGETHER? WE FEAR BATHOS TOO MUCH, ARE SHYLY DECENT TO THE PITCH OF MANIA, WE HAVE NEITHER THE COURAGE OF OUR BODIES NOR OF OUR SOULS. I WENT ALMOST IMMEDIATELY TO ROME. I STAYED IN ROME SOME DAYS, GETTING TOGETHER AN OUTFIT, AND INCIDENTALLY SEEING THAT GREATER CITY OF THE DEAD, IN WHOSE EMBRACE THE MODERN CITY LIES. I WAS NOW BECOMING INTERESTED IN THINGS OUTSIDE MY GROOVES, THOUGH MY GROOVES WERE STILL THERE, DEEP AND RECEPTIVE and I went about the place at last, almost eagerly, tracing the outlines of that great departed city, on whose colossal bones the churches and palaces of the Middle Ages cluster like weeds in the spaces and ruins of a magnificent garden. I found myself one day in the Forum, thinking of that imperialism that had built the Basilica of Julius Caesar, and comparing its cramped vestiges with that vaster second administrative effort which has left the world the monstrous arches of constantine i sat down over against these last among the ruins of the vestals house and mused on that later reconstruction when the empire with its science aborted and its literature and philosophy shrivelled to nothing its social fabric ruined by the extravagances of financial adventure AND ITS HONOR AND PATRIOTISM ALTOGETHER DEAD, UNITED ITSELF IN A DESPERATE EFFORT TO CONTINUE WITH ALL THAT WAS MOST BICKERINGLY INTOLERANT AND DESTRUCTIVE IN CHRISTIANITY, ONLY TO ACHIEVE ONE COMMON FAST DECAY. ALL EUROPE TO THIS DAY IS LITTLE MORE THAN THE SEQUEL TO THAT FAILURE. IT IS THE ROMAN EMPIRE IN DISINTEGRATION, The very churches whose domes rise to the northward of the ancient remains are built of looted stones, and look like parasitic and fungoid growths, and the tourists stream through those spaces day by day, stare at the marble fragments, the arches, the fallen carvings and rich capitals, with nothing greater in their minds, and nothing clearer. I discovered I was putting all this into the form of a letter to Mary. I was writing to her in my mind, as many people talk to themselves. And I remember that I wandered upon the Palatine Hill, musing over the idea of writing a long letter to her, a long, continuous letter to her, a sort of diary of impressions and ideas, that some when, years ahead, I might be able to put into her hands." One does not carry out such an idea into reality. It is so much easier to leave the letter imagined and unwritten if there lives but little hope of its delivery. Yet for many years I kept up an impalpable correspondence in my thoughts, a stream of expression to which no answer came. Until at last the habits of public writing and the gathering interests of a new role in life diverted it to other ends. Eight. One morning, on the way from Brindisi to Egypt, I came up on deck at dawn, because my mind was restless, and I could not sleep. Another solitary passenger was already up, so intently watching a pink lit, rocky coastline away to the north of us, that for a time he did not observe me. That's Crete, he said, when at last he became aware of me close at hand. Crete, said I. Yes, he said, Crete. He came nearer to me. That, sir, he said, with a challenging emphasis, is the most wonderful island I've ever yet set eyes on, quite the most wonderful. Five thousand years ago, he remarked, after a pause that seemed to me to be calculated, they were building palaces there, better than the best we can build today, and things like modern things. They had bathrooms there, beautifully fitted bathrooms, and admirable sanitation. Admirable. Practically American. They had better artists to serve them than your King Edward has, why? Minos would have laughed or screamed at all that Windsor furniture. And the things they made of gold, sir? You couldn't get them done anywhere today. Not for any money. There was a go about them. They had a kind of writing, too, before the Phoenicians. No man can read it now, and there it is. Fifty centuries ago it was, and today they grow oranges and lemons, and they riot. Everything else gone. It's as if men struggled up to a certain pitch and then grew tired. All this Mediterranean. It's a tired sea." That was the beginning of a curious conversation. He was an American, a year or so younger than myself, going, he said, to look at Egypt. In our country, he explained, we are apt to forget all these worked-out regions, too apt. We don't get our perspectives. We think the whole blessed world is one everlasting boom. It hit me first down in Yucatan that that wasn't so. Why, the world's littered with the remains of booms and swaggering beginnings. Americanism. There's always been Americanism. This Mediterranean is just a museum of old Americas. I guess Tyre and Sidon thought they were licking creation all the time. It set me thinking. What's really going on? Why, anywhere... You're running about among ruins, anywhere, and ruins of something just as good as anything we're doing today. Better, in some ways. It takes the heart out of you. It was Gidding, who is now my close friend and ally. I remember very vividly the flavor of morning freshness as we watched Crete pass away northward, and I listened to his talk. I was coming out of New York Harbor a month ago and looking back at the skyscrapers," he said, and suddenly it hit me in the mind. That's just the next ruin, I thought. I remember that much of our first talk, but the rest of it now is indistinct. We had, however, struck up an acquaintance. We were both alone. And until he left me on his way to Abidas, WE SEEM NOW TO HAVE BEEN CONVERSING ALL THE TIME. AND ALMOST ALL THE TIME WE WERE DISCUSSING HUMAN DESTINY, AND THE CAUSES OF EFFORT AND DECAY, AND WHETHER THE LAST FEW ASCENDANT CENTURIES THE WORLD HAS SEEN HAVE IN THEM ANYTHING MORE PERSISTENT THAN THE COUNTLESS BEGINNINGS THAT HAVE GONE BEFORE. THERE'S SCIENCE, SAID I, A LITTLE DOUBTFULLY. AT NOSUS THERE THEY HAD Daedalus, SIR, FIFTY CENTURIES AGO. Daedalus! He was an FRS, all right. I haven't a doubt he flew. If they hadn't steel, they had brass. We are too conceited about our little modern things. Nine. I found something very striking and dramatic in the passage from Europe to Asia. One steams slowly through a desert that comes up close to the ship. The sand stretches away, hillock and mound beyond hillock and mound. One sees camels in the offing, stringing out to some ancient destination. One is manifestly passing across a barrier. The canal has changed nothing of that. Suez is a first dab of tumultuous Orientalism, noisy and vivid. And then, after that gleam of turmoil, one opens out, INTO THE LONELY, DARK BLUE WATERS OF THE RED SEA. RIGHT AND LEFT THE SHORE IS A BITTER, SUN-SCORCHED DESOLATION. EASTWARD FROWNS A GREAT RAMPART OF LOWERING PURPLE MOUNTAINS, TOWERING UP TO SINAI. IT IS LIKE NO EUROPEAN LANDSCAPE. THE BOAT GOES SLOWLY, AS IF UNCHARTED DANGERS LURKED AHEAD. IT IS A NEW WORLD, WITH A NEW ATMOSPHERE. Then comes wave upon wave of ever more sultry air, and the punkas begin to swing, and the white cloths appear. Everyone casts off Europe, assumes an Asiatic livery. The very sun, rushing up angrily and abruptly after a heated night, is unfamiliar, an Asiatic sun. And so one goes down that reef-fringed waterway to Aden, it is studded with lonely-looking lighthouses, that burn it seems untended, and sometimes in their melancholy isolation swing great rhythmic arms of light. And then, land and the last Latine sails of Aden vanishing together, one stands out into the hot thundery monotonies of the Indian Ocean. Into imprisonment, in a blue horizon across whose titan ring the engine seemed to throb in vain how one paces the ship day by day and eats and dozes and eats again and gossips inanely and thanks heaven even for a flight of flying fish or a trail of smoke from over the horizon to take one's mind a little out of one's oily quivering prison A hot portentous delay, a sinister significant pause. That is the voyage from Europe to India still. I suppose by the time that you will go to India, all this prelude will have vanished. You will rattle through in a train de luxe from Calais, by way of Baku or Constantinople. You will have none of this effect of a deliberate, sullen approach across limitless miles of sea. But that is how I went to India. Everything seemed to expand. I was coming out of the frequent landfalls, the neighborly intimacies and neighborly conflicts of the Mediterranean, into something remoter, into larger seas and greater lands, rarer communications and a vaster future. To go from Europe to Asia is like going from Norway to Russia, from something slight and advanced to something massive and portentous. I felt that nearly nine years ago. Today all Asia seems moving forward to justify my feelings. And I remember, too, that as I went down the Red Sea, and again in the Indian Ocean, I HAD A NEARLY INTOLERABLE PASSION OF LONELINESS. A WOUND MAY HEAL AND STILL LEAVE PAIN. I WAS COMING OUT OF EUROPE AS ONE COMES OUT OF A FAMILIAR HOUSE INTO SOMETHING LARGER AND STRANGER. I SEEMED BUT A LITTLE SPECK OF LIFE. AND BEHIND ME, FAR AWAY AND SILENT AND RECEDING, WAS THE ONE OTHER BEING TO WHOM MY THOUGHTS WERE OPEN, It seemed very cruel to me that I could not write to her. Such moods were to come to me again and again, and particularly during the inactivities of voyages, and in large empty spaces, and at night when I was weary. At other times I could banish and overcome them by forcing myself to be busy, and by going to see novel and moving things. End of chapter 7